0: This is Dr. Ellie Domit, Reader of Neuroscience at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London, and you are listening to the Academy's Developing Practice Podcast.
1: So in this episode we chat with Ellie about her research into the legacy of lockdown and the impact this has had and will have on teaching and learning in higher education. We hope you enjoy.
2: Ellie, we're really pleased to be speaking with you today and we're delighted to be hearing about your research into the legacy of lockdown and the impact that this has had and will have on teaching and learning in higher education. what we do with each guest is we like to get a little bit of background information first so if you could tell us a little bit about how you arrived at your position at King's that'd be brilliant thanks.
0: Yeah so I um, I actually joined King's uh, now almost seven years ago because they wanted to start their first psychology degree and um, it always surprises people that King's hasn't historically had a psychology degree um, So I came to King's uh, then and I came from the Open University so uh, I had quite a long background in distance and online learning through a lectureship at the Open University but actually going back even further I'd been one of the OU's tutors so doing correspondence tuition now for almost 20 years and I think it's during that that I kind of developed my interest, particularly in teaching, so I do research, as, as many academics do, do research alongside my teaching, um, but it was working with the OU to develop a kind of passion and an interest in teaching and evidence-based teaching. And then, particularly in terms of online teaching and looking at the impact it has on a diversity of students, because the Open University probably has one of the most diverse student pop- populations. And so then taking all of that and going into King's to be part of a small team, setting up a new degree.
1: Fantastic. And the degree that you set up at King's, was that online or was that uh, pre-COVID? I mean, was that online or was that face to face?
0: No, that was all um, face to face. But we have right since the start of it been um, perhaps outliers initially because obviously now now everybody's doing it a bit more but um we were probably outliers in how extensively we used our virtual learning environment and how we structured the whole degree really to be led by the VLE so there was that sort of central platform so that's always been the case pre-COVID for us but the teaching prior to the pandemic was all in person
1: so obviously your recent research has been on the legacy of lockdown and the impact this has on learning and teaching landscape within higher education. So what prompted this line of research in particular?
0: I think really, you know, one of the things that universities are historically, and it's no no one university or no one area of the sector, they're very good at, at not collecting evidence about how they teach. You know, we do something, a particular way because we've always done it that way. And somehow saying we've always done it that way um is acceptable. And it it wouldn't be. You know, you couldn't sort of go into a hospital and say, well, we're going to try this drug. Well, why? Well, we've always tried it before. You know, you'd have to have evidence for it. And I think the pandemic, what it offered was um a unique and, and hopefully never to be had again opportunity to look at what happens when we suddenly shift teaching and learning online. And 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 although it's, it was a sudden shift, we've got to remember that HE and, and other elements of education have been moving this way for decades, very slowly. You know, um, education as a whole is very risk-averse. And, I, you know, I think I once had somebody describe academics as pathologically hating change, and I think that's, that's certainly true in many cases. But also it's not necessarily a hatred of change, it's a capacity for change. Um, The academic role is is a very strange role. Um, Whenever I talk to people outside of academia, I realize how strange it is because they sort of go, oh, you do that and that, and then you have to do that. And it's sort of this very odd role. And so people haven't had the capacity to sit down and say, I want to explore X, Y, Z in the context of my teaching. And what the pandemic did was suddenly throw everything up in the air. And we were all very restricted in what we could or couldn't do, but it was in the direction that change was already going. So it seemed like a really good opportunity to look at um, the, I mean, we, we've done several projects. So to look at staff and student impact in terms of wellbeing and digital skills, but also specifically to look at it in terms of how we teach and start to say, you know, let's let's think about this, not just because we've always done it this way, but what happens when we do something differently what is the student perception what is the staff perception and what could we take forward from that because i think it's fair to say that although several universities and individual academics will make a shift back to their pre-pandemic teaching um many won't and and there's a you know you can't unlearn the last two years i think many of us think it might be nice to forget it but actually there's been some really um innovative approaches taken and and why would we why would we stop doing that now it's over so it's just a prime opportunity to see what happens when change was forced upon um a group of actually you know highly creative and some excellent teachers across the sector
2: i think one of the interesting things um around this opportunity to to change um is it's sort of being driven by students isn't it so we're having conversations at liverpool at the moment where we've had students that have done their a levels or have completed their a levels during a pandemic and have and have successfully managed to navigate that online then they're coming to a university and they don't have um they're not having the same maybe experiences what they would have done if it was pre-pandemic and what we're seeing is that we're not having the the attendance figures in lectures, as we would have done, or even in practical things, in lab-based things, because students are ex- are expecting that all of this will be done online, or or they can catch up online. Are you finding the same sort of things at Kings?
0: Um, yes and no. So I think at Kings um, we introduced lecture capture back in two thousand and fifteen, um, and as I as I joined that year, I personally don't have the kind of pre-post data from my own experiences but there were a lot of concerns about attendance dropping because of that and because students could just watch it at home and um, I did quite a lot of research around this and and there are various factors that predict that one of which of course is that we're in the middle of London it's extremely expensive to travel in and out of London so when students told me in focus groups they were choosing between coming in for a one-hour lecture and their food shop that week I personally as a lecturer would rather they stay at home and ate so there were all sorts of factors around that. So we've had quite low attendance at big lectures for a while um, in some disciplines, not all of them, but we typically always had them coming in for practicals um, and seminars. So I run one of my practicals, it's the only one the students ever really like. Um, I take them to a, an anatomy, pathology museum. So they're literally standing there looking at brains in jars. Um, you know, there's lots of nice things I can do online there's lots of 3D brain models you can you can purchase you can produce but you cannot possibly uh, replicate that experience of like you know prodding a brain you just you just can't so I think we have now got a situation where there's still our students are still quite willing and keen to come in um, but only for the things that they can see a real value is added Um, and uh, And I think the the work that we did around the post-pandemic lecture, um, which we did alongside um, Echo360, who of course are a lecture capture company, but do a lot more than that, um, they supported this research. We found that staff were also of the view that, you know why get 400 students in a lecture theater to talk at them for two hours? Wouldn't it be a better use of their time and our time to produce some videos, some online learning material and get them in to discuss and engage? And one of the things we heard repeatedly um, in the general media, not the not the research literature, throughout the pandemic, was students feeling like they weren't getting their university experience. And when you drill down, what that is, they mean the social experience. And um, yes, okay, you chat to your peers before and after a lecture, probably during it at times as well. But you know, having having them come in and sit through a lecture doesn't really give them much of a social experience. And I think that what we still will continue to see is that small group teaching or even it could be quite large groups but where they're working closely and collaboratively that will contribute not only to their educational experience but their social experience and i think once that's recognized and accepted people will be keen students will be keen to come in for that um i you know i can fully see how if you don't see the benefit you don't want to come in um and that's not uh, that's not new to the pandemic. I think probably the the students that did their A-levels during the pandemic, they sort of also got used to doing stuff by themselves. Um, but one area where we've got to be really careful um, at universities is is this idea that we should always be driven by st- student expectations. You know, there's two things that drive university practice historically one is the because we've always done it that way and the other one is it's because what the students want and actually if you look at the research literature around educational practices some of the stuff the students want is not actually good for them in terms of their learning and their skills development and a lot of the research you know research is um education research I think is a bit like psychology research which is typically um focused on weird populations and i can never remember the acronym but i think it's western educated industrialized rich democratic um countries and and so basically for psychology research that's middle class white females um and i think when we do a lot of education research that's what happens as well so actually when we talk about student expectations we're talking about expectations of our weird population not expectations of the whole student body and when you look at that um i think that's a, Those expectations are actually quite diverse. And and some of those students do really want to come onto campus. They just need to know that they're coming on for something that isn't being talked at for two hours.
2: Yeah, that real value. And it's yeah, that that is the message, isn't it? For many universities, it's around communicating that value um, appropriately as well.
1: I just wondered um, if you just tell us a bit more Ellie about your specific research project then so how did you
0: ensure that your your sample wasn't weird tell us more about the detail. So um, we've done I mean we've done a couple of research projects the post-pandemic one focused on staff so I think they were almost certainly weird in in every sense of that word um, because it was focused on academic staff but we were able to sample from over 30 universities and staff at, at varying levels the only inclusion criteria that we set was that they should have been teaching during the pandemic because we didn't want to hear from people that had other people doing their teaching for them we wanted to hear from the people on the ground Um, and so in doing that we also you know in an ideal world we'd have probably done interviews or focus groups uh, but the beauty of researching in this context is that you do it pretty quickly because you have to and uh, obviously it was all done online for Um, reasons that we couldn't sort of go out and speak to people in person, but we made sure we were asking lots of open-ended questions, we made sure we got um, staff from a range of universities, so we did hit universities that would um, come under the Russell Group and the post-92s to make sure that we were seeing, um, because obviously the universities do whatever they say, they probably value Um, teaching intensiveness differently in the different types of universities so we did it that way to get our get away from not necessarily get away from a weird population but get away from a a very um, similar population so in, in doing that we were able to ask people what approaches they'd taken Um, why they'd taken them, what they felt was effective. So although we had to do it as an online survey, we had lots of open questions. And just in terms of the data that we got back, we know that the universities um, were at different, quite different phases in their kind of technology enhanced learning prior to the pandemic. So some reported having no lecture capture technology at all. and and so they sort of you know we said what's going to happen after the pandemic and they said well the university spent all this money on it so I guess we carry on because they had to put it in very rapidly um other universities were already using um lecture capture were using other tools as well to support interactivity in live lectures so polling tools and and that sort of thing so there was a lot of diversity in there which I think it, it doesn't mean that your findings necessarily generalize to everybody but it protects against one type of university or one um type of uh, teaching discipline affecting it um obviously it's a survey so you get that selection bias so you always get a little bit of those that are really passionate fill it in or those that are really annoyed and sometimes they're passionate in their annoyance so you get that nice (laughs) spread Um, but that was how we got around it on that particular project when we do work with students again we try and take across a whole university cohort and we'll typically look um, at our data set to check we've got a sensible gender ratio ratio of students perhaps with um uh, declared disabilities because we would typically ask about that um ethnicity widening participation that kind of thing as well which is really important to consider
1: Brilliant. And in terms of the findings from um, particularly the work with the academics, was there anything that really struck you as unique or interesting? Um, Obviously, I think what you're saying is academics had obviously adapted their practice to their specific context, their university, their students. But is there anything that really stood out
0: to you? I think there were probably a a few things. The first thing is there was um, this kind of digital positivity. Um, which I don't think I've been there before. So certainly at King's, I'd I'd led some research on lecture capture and um, some of the focus groups, I felt like I was being lynched by staff. You know, I was just asking the questions and there was a lot of discontent around it. Now, that wasn't about the technology per se. It was about the policy. It was about the implementation. There's all sorts of things around it. But what we have generally seen and is backed up in the literature is that staff are less positive about things than students when it comes to technology in their learning. And post-pandemic, we, we found that sh- staff generally had a pretty positive attitude to lecture capture technology. And uh, when we asked why, um, we asked them if their attitude had changed and if it had in what way, there was this sort of sense of Recognizing that it could, it has a place. So, things like recognizing for a student that has caring responsibilities or a student that's poorly, rather than dragging themselves in or having to wait for the video to be available online, they can join in and watch it as a live stream. And, um, you know, I think we're all agreed that the, the extent of social isolation we had with COVID is not ideal. But I think also we don't want to sit in a cramped meeting next to somebody that's coughing and spluttering. So, we want to give Um, students and colleagues the choice to stay at home and that was sort of recognized more so I think there was this recognition that digital things could bring benefits um, beyond the one that's often touted around inclusivity so that was the first thing I think the second thing was the reasons people had for whether they would go back to what they had before. And what was really interesting was that those people that felt they were just going to go back to a post-pandemic lecture, you know, 400 students sitting in a room talking at them. When you ask them why, it was never about the pedagogy. It was never about the student experience. It was always about practical constraints. So, you know, the university are gonna make me. (laughs) The university say it's cost-effective. We've got to get 400 students in. That's the only way we can do it. Or you know, now we have bought the kit, we've got to. Uh, One of the more personal kind of practical reasons was, I've been wiped out for two years, I need to salvage my research career, this is the efficient way to do it. But all of the people that talked about wanting to take the lessons they learn and put them into practice so there was a big emphasis on wanting to do blended um, learning and flipped approaches and much more interactivity. all cited pedagogic reasons and student experience so it seems that now we're at a point where we have this kind of conflict of um, academics and those doing the actual teaching many of them would like to take on board what they learnt and put it into practice when we go back into more traditional forms of teaching but there are constraints some around their own individual career but often around the infrastructure they find themselves in.
2: It's really interesting what you say there Ellie I mean we're seeing a growing emphasis around the sector of on delivering flipped or blended teaching. I think there's a university, I think it's Northampton or I might I might be incorrect on that who have abandoned uh, large lecture theatres and have gone you know have gone down the seminar uh, sort of style. Um so what what is the impact of this? You know what what do you think the impact of this is having on planning for academics for example?
0: Yeah, I think um I think it's it's a challenge um on several levels uh you know there is this big push i I don't think i have spoken to an academic at any university that's not said the university would like them to have more students nobody says actually we would like you to have fewer students um so there is this management of just what is small group teaching you know we we have situations when we started our program small group session was 25 students through various factors the program's now massive and we have 50 students to me that doesn't feel like small group teaching anymore um so I think it's about thinking what can realistically be done without somebody having to run lots of repeats of a session now you think well why does it matter if they have to run lots of repeats of a session well if I've run it five times I'm going to really struggle to maintain that enthusiasm and engagement um, for that that particular class. So I think there is an element of making, you know, academics need to think carefully about what sessions they can do that really genuinely are small groups. So seminars are great. Um, the the other thing is, I think we also need to be a little bit less precious over things. So I, I, mentioned, um, I mentioned that I've been an OU tutor. So one of the wonderful things about the OU, which is not replicated anywhere else, as far as I'm aware, is you have a very small team of academics that write a module so they'll they'll plan out everything, and then it's largely taught by a group of people that they've never met in the form of the tutors. And I think you know that the tutors become kind of the custodians of it. You know, we have wonderful teaching assistants. Why does it have to be me that stands there and does everything? Actually, the students would probably prefer to hear from somebody that's done some research in the last week instead of just looked at spreadsheets of student data. Um, so you know, there is this balance of recognizing that if you move away from large group teaching, you're going to have to either have somebody running lots and lots of sessions or relinquish control over some of the teaching. And that um, that's a little bit uncomfortable for us because we've all got our modules that we see as our babies. Um, and and it's not even just about that. It's, it's also recognizing that that needs resource. You want the right people in the room. So you need to have the resource to have a team of good teaching assistants that you can oversee and you have to be able to take the time to prepare appropriate documentation for them so each year for my graduate teaching assistants I prepare like a 30 page booklet that does all the instructions for all of the practicals and so they can see even if they haven't run one they can see what the students did in the previous one and then they have all the information so I think the implications of moving away from lectures are it will in the short term. Be a massive amount of planning and it's a lot of coordination and where you have more people involved in teaching inevitably there can be issues of quality assurance now one person of course can do a bad job um and that's sort of okay in a sense when you've got 30 people doing a different level of bad job it becomes very difficult to get any sort of consistency for the student experience so i think it it becomes a much bigger job but i think it requires us to move to team teaching and that's never a bad thing because you learn a lot through you know most of the time i I mean we go on these staff development things at universities and you sit there for three hours you eat a soggy sandwich and you think okay that was nice um but unless you're going away and practicing it instantly it's lost on you whereas working with your peers as part of a team you actually learn a lot so i think if we're going to move away from lectures as a whole we need to look at what that involves. And unfortunately for universities in the short term, that's gonna involve resource. I think in a lot of
1: what you're saying, Ellie, you're you're picking out some principles there for us in terms of what we've learned from from lockdown and this kind of legacy moving forward. So if you could summarize for us, What are the kind of key principles that we could apply as we're moving forward, whether we're taking, um, whether we're leading learning in person or online? What are those kind of key um, kind of umbrella principles that we need to keep in mind?
0: So I think the first principle is that, um, you know, we have to have student centred learning. So whether that is um, in the form of bite sized videos, which they much prefer, or bite sized in person lectures instead of two hour blocks of information. So making sure we have a student centered approach. Um, we do, of course, have to have inclusivity. The pandemic really brought that home, but in a, in a positive way in that it saw it allowed people to see that inclusive technologies or technologies that allow inclusivity, I should say, um, are already there and in existence and they're not as scary as they might have seemed. Um, so I think student centered inclusivity um, and keeping that interactivity going between students and betw- so between You know, groups of students and between staff and students, but recognizing there's lots of ways to do that. So it doesn't have to be standing at the front of a session and waiting for people to ask you session questions as they leave. There are other ways to do it. And I think just the the final point is that we need to take what we learn in terms of rapidly evaluating teaching, and we need to keep doing that. There are areas um, around inclusivity, for example, um, the use of captions, that have become a legal requirement. The evidence is pretty sketchy for how beneficial they are. We also know from some work we've, we've just started to do, um, neurodiverse students are hardly ever heard of in the research or considered. And we know that what they find helpful may be different to neurotypical students. So how do you manage that? So I think it is student centred, um, making sure we have interactivity between everybody in the in the learning sort of package, if you like, um, and looking, continuously looking for evidence. They would be the key points.
2: So we've been having the same conversations, Ellie, around the approach to using technology and, and how we therefore prioritise inclusion. And I mean, you've touched on that a few times. Are you seeing some real benefits of inclusion? Some things maybe that aren't the obvious when it comes to online or where it comes to maybe the blended or flipped approach?
0: i think it's to be honest there aren't really the obvious benefits yet we right. know so we ran a we ran a project that actually started um before covid and was accidentally quite disrupted by it but it was looking at um the the benefits of captioning and transcripts um, being added to Echo 360, which is our lecture capture project. So we were able to switch them on and off as part of this experimental approach, um, and we found that students really liked them. So all the data showed that they liked having them, um, and they did give good reasons. So, for example, they talked about them being searchable, so they could learn more efficiently and they could revisit bits um that they found tricky without having to scroll through or watch it at high speed to pick out the bits they're interested in but when we looked at how it affected their their actual performance there was no effect at all um now that raises the question of how do we class performance and i i would you know probably be one of the um people that would almost advocate a no no grade approach um in some cases that actually this is about how well you learn in which case of course taking into account student preferences makes Perfect sense. Um, But there wasn't anything in that data that suggested it was beneficial to any particular groups of people. They just all liked it, but they couldn't really give you, um, you know, they could give you reasons why they liked it, but there was no objective evidence that it was any good. And I think in that case, we're going to have to look at inclusivity and say, how are we going to evaluate this? Is it going to be on objective, hard evidence? Um, And I think that's going to be a struggle actually, because you know, when we ask a student to sit an exam, we would consider that an objective measure of their performance. But actually, there's all sorts of reasons why that might not be a smart objective measure. So if we're just going to look at student preferences and attitudes and how much it allows them to learn in a way that they are comfortable learning, that obviously becomes subjective. Um, we do know that students have reported um sort of informally so not through formal research they do like the fact that the online things allow them to take a break and step away when they want to or study in different environments but we also know that for some of our students um they don't have a a sensible study environment so the more we put online um and say, can you do this at home before you come in? We risk our most disadvantaged students being further disadvantaged. So I think inclusivity is a funny thing because we'll go to all these efforts to include people and accidentally, I suspect, exclude some other people. So there's going to have to be a balance. And actually probably the answer is to have multiple approaches where a student can choose to engage with the ones that work for them um, the challenge there, of course, is going to be empowering the students to make an informed decision on that, which I yeah. think is a whole other minefield.
2: Yeah. yeah. Is there another challenge around um, the work involved in creating um, the, you know, the different modalities for people, for students to access? We, we have a conversation quite regularly about um, what do we do with those students who are technology poor? because the more we do online and the more we think we're including increasing the the inclusivity the more detrimental we could be to those groups
0: yeah absolutely so we also did some other research um, again during the pandemic but sort of not related to it where we've set up a new digital skills program and we looked at um, how the students uh, evaluated that program and we found some really interesting things so for example um, Certain uh, groups of students in terms of ethnicity felt more benefit to the program, but interestingly, they weren't performing worse than the others in the first place, but they perceived a greater benefit. Um, So we know there are differences. Also, there's differences in terms of, um, as, as you might expect, you know, digital skills. The main factor that develops them is somebody's digital immersion. So, if you come from a home where there is more than one laptop, um, there's tablets, there's loads of mobile phones, you're more likely to be digitally able to some extent than somebody who hasn't come from that kind of background. And I think that is a real issue. You know, one of the things that we implemented for our online open book exams in the most recent exam period following feedback from the lockdown was we actually said if you haven't got a suitable study space at home, come in and do the online exam and we'll keep a room quiet for you. We're not invigilating because this is an online open book, but we'll keep it quiet for you. Um, And that wasn't even necessarily about do you have the technology or the broadband at home? That could be, and we did have it where a a student's uh, broadband provider decided to do some work on the day of the exam. So they were able to come in and, and do their thing there. But I think we need to, the more we shift online, the more we have to integrate digital skills training for everybody. Um, So staff and students. Um, And the more we have to have facilities in place for students to have, for example, long term laptop loans. You know, we have laptop loans, but it's for 72 hours. Well, that isn't going to be enough if you need to type up your dissertation. So making that kind of setup available and recognising, of course, that digital natives do not exist. (laughs) Um, You know, we we can we've got some very digitally able staff and students, but we've got some that are very not digitally able and then we've got some that think they are but actually aren't so there's a need to get that balance right just assume the starting point is is nowhere and go from there and if you assume that you can't really go wrong
2: it's a fascinating um, topic that around digitally native um you know, <laughs> we've uh, been looking at the same thing with our staff groups as well and being obviously a staff developer but um you're right the spectrum is massive We've got people who are not able to maybe even use Amazon to order something online, to, to people who, uh, you know, code in their spare time. So it's a it's a massive rabbit hole for us in terms of de- developers about where do we target our provision.
0: Yeah, and some of the work that we did um, through some some actual some university funding actually, we looked at how digital skills in students related to their well being during the pandemic. And digital skills was a predictor of well-being. And I think this is something that we assume you get, you create something, it's got all these bells and whistles, whether it's for staff or students, but actually if it's stressful for them to get to it and use it and navigate it, you're not helping anyone. You know, I sort of feel like sometimes I really just need a one page sheet on that someone, you know, could somebody post it to me if I'm working at home, you know, where I can actually work through something. But some of our students will be in that position as well. We do know from again from the post pandemic project um, that staff felt they had upskilled a lot. And I think they had. But as you say, at the starting point for so that upskilling was so variable, um, it's it's a real challenge. and And we've also found ourselves working you know, like I've worked for two years now on a laptop, whereas because before I was setting up the VLE, I had my kind of two massive screens, trying to set up the VLE on a laptop, when I wasn't allowed to go to work because of the lockdown, was a really painful process. And then you start to make mistakes on it. And of course, it takes two seconds for a student to spot that. (laughs) And you're sort of like, well, actually, I'm I'm trying my best. (laughs) Um, But it is, we have got to take that into account. I think we actually also, you know, one of the nice things that should come out of this, whether it will, I don't know, um, is that I think we all have to be a little bit more forgiving of, of the quality of something. So one of the things staff said was that having to suddenly put all their videos online, they sort of realised it did not have to be like a Hollywood production. Students were quite happy just to see them on Teams, on Zoom, talking through the material. Um, whereas before they've sort of felt this pressure and I think part of that comes from the kind of staff development we have where they go here you can create this and it's like a kind of Oscar winning film and you think actually I really can't create that but staff have recognized they don't have to do that the importance is they are there and they're engaging and if one of the slides does something funny or the audio is a bit crackly students actually don't mind um, if they still feel they're getting value from it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Matt and I are both in staff development and we, I know we both made that um, move, probably less so for Matt because his videos are professional, but for the work that I've done, putting out videos which were really kind of rough and ready um, was a massive relief, wasn't it? And you could just get your work online so much quicker than feeling that it had to be this glossy, beautiful production. Um, And we've definitely kept that in, in a lot of our work of, you know, just popping videos up that are just us. Um, with, with no kind of production behind it. Um, Ellie, there's loads from your experiences and from your research um, that we can draw from and reflect on and think about. So, thanks so much for sharing so much of that with us. So, moving forward, as we emerge from the last two years, people keep telling me that COVID's over. I'm not sure that it is, but this is kind of the direction that we're heading in. Um, how do you think it's going to settle in terms of the lasting impact on the teaching and learning landscape in higher education?
0: I think um, there's going to be sort of both individual and sector-wide lasting impacts. I think we have, as a sector, the staff have upskilled massively. And I think as difficult as the last two years have been, that upskilling has been welcomed by everybody. Um, So I think we'll start to see people perhaps pushing boundaries a little bit more, being willing to try something different because when it was forced upon them in less than ideal circumstances, you know okay things weren't perfect but they were good enough in many cases and just having that reassurance i suspect we'll start to see higher education becoming maybe a little less risk averse and a little more innovative which would be fabulous um i also think we'll start to see more diversity in teaching and learning approaches i would love to see a move away from the conventional lecture when it isn't supported Um, by the evidence for a particular thing. So I absolutely am not saying we should not have conventional lectures. Sometimes they're great and they're exactly what's needed. But considering how to make that a more um, appropriate method in some cases would be good. And then finally, I just hope that the people that have um, put in a huge amount of work over the last few years, the academics that have done that, um, I hope that they'll be able to take stock do some evaluation of their teaching um, and, and make sure that whoever needs to hear about that hears about it, whether it's peers through peer-reviewed literature or senior university leadership, making sure that what we've learned doesn't get forgotten because the only way we're going to change this is if the people at the forefront, those who are actually doing the teaching, push for that change. If not, it will be all too easy for us to go back to what we had before.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of, of a a story. No, it's not a story. It's a, it's a bit from a book by I always, I'm terrible with author, author names, but it's a book on change. And you mentioned right at the beginning, didn't you about academics being, was it pathologically adverse to change? I think was the term that you used. And the bit in the book says that, um, some people are like palm trees and that when the storm comes across the, um, the palm tree gets buffeted by the wind and the waves and it flexes and bends um, and it, it does that in the middle of that storm. And when the storm has passed, it ret- returns to its original position. And that's the danger, isn't it, with this? That it, we all just very easily snap back to 2019 and think we can continue as we were. Um, because I, I'm, I'm with you, Ellie. I don't think we can. I think we would lose an awful lot of innovation if we did that.
0: Yeah, and I think we've you know, we have still got a lot to learn. One of the things that was my bugbear through throughout the pandemic was when you looked at the major popular publications they all, when they wanted to talk about the transition to online learning, they went to Oxford, they went to Cambridge, they went to UCL, and they sort of said, oh, there's new distance and online learning, and I thought, firstly, it's not new, secondly, why aren't you talking to the world-leading experts at places like the Open University, um, if you're going to talk about this, I'm not saying Oxford, UCL don't have fabulous things to say, of course, they probably do, but other universities were being overlooked. And I mean, you mentioned Northampton earlier, they have been pushing the boundaries of teaching um, really well for, for a long time now. And I hope that one thing that will happen is that the right voices will get around the table here. You know, when you take away the pomp and the circumstance of the, uh, of the lecture, when you take away um, the kind of we'll do this because historically that's what we've always done at this wonderful historical institution. When you strip all of that away, let's get the right voices around the table to actually innovate education. And they will be voices from a a massive diversity of universities um, who have a good amount of experience in teaching a huge range of students. And ultimately, as we, as all universities, I think, are keen to push a widening participation agenda, all universities need to have some diversity in their, policies in their voice their staff voices Um, so you know it would be great to hear from more from universities like Northampton um Derby you know University of Derby online has been doing this for years um why aren't they being heard from in the same way and I think it's only when we get everybody around the table that the conversation will will start to take the sector forward rather than individual programs or individual institutions
2: it's like that was like a rallying call that was fantastic uh, thanks for everything that you've you've discussed with us today, Ali. Uh, this podcast is the Developing Practice podcast, and we like to finish each episode in the same way, where the the guest gives us three or four take home tips that the listeners can take home and reflect on. So, if you do have a few tips for us, what would they be?
0: I think the first tip would actually be to to kind of step back once you've. Um, recovered from what happened in COVID in the transition. Um, you know, we were all run off our feet. Um, you know, didn't didn't manage to take leave, didn't manage to sleep after time. Um, just managing that transition to online learning. And I think it's really helpful to just look back and say what actually worked well? And, and ask that question from different perspectives. Ask it of yourself. You know, what did I find more enjoyable to do than I was expecting? Um, ask it of your colleagues. You know, if they, if they were working with you on something, what was their perception on it? And then, of course, asking it about your students. So I think it's reflecting on your own practice is really important. And then I would say a second tip is to now take some of that forward in a more um, I want to say calmer manner, but I'm not sure that's quite the right word. I think I mean just, you know, that was a reactionary. COVID was a, a big period of reactionary teaching. Um, what could now be put into something um, that you can take forward? So one of the things that I did, for example, when I was trying to teach about depression, um, I actually managed to find a, a close friend who had experienced depression. And I got him to script me something that I could have recorded and put on the VLE. Um, so that the students could hear something a bit more personal and a bit more powerful, even though there was nobody in front of them at a lecture. So that kind of thing, can you take some of the snippets and now use those in a, in a more considered way? So reflection, consideration of, of what can go forward and then always the same thing again, pushing the boundaries. What for you, now you've achieved whatever you achieved for you personally in the pandemic teaching, what is the next boundary for you to push and then simply how do you push that boundary who do you need to speak to what skills do you need to go ahead and push the innovation in your teaching
2: brilliant thanks for your time ellie it's been great to hear from you thank you Well, I thought that was a really insightful and interesting conversation with Ellie there. I, I like that she was talking about her research into what academics will keep and what they will let go in response to the pandemic. She said that when assessing what to keep and what to let go, she said she would assess the value for students. So we what we really need is a student-centered, inclusive approach to all the decisions that we make.
1: Yeah, absolutely. She also said in relation to that, that the overwhelming outcome of her research showed that academics who'd indicated that they were gonna go back to the pre-pandemic ways of supporting learning were often doing this for legitimate reasons. However, they were never pedagogic reasons. Well, there's lots for us um, within that recording to think about and reflect on in terms of our own personal practice. If you'd like to take your thinking further, we've added some resources to the website on a specific podcast reading list which you can access at liverpool.ac.uk forward slash the hyphen academy forward slash podcast. Also, we'd love to hear what you thought about the episode. So please do tweet us at Live Uni Academy. And you can also find us at eLearnerMatt or at Alexandra underscore Owen on Twitter.
2: Yeah, and we're really grateful for those who have already taken the time to either rate or review our show in your podcast providers app. But if you haven't done so already, please do review the show as it really will help others find us. Bye for now.